and people who um, have the patience and keep the liquidity and and think long term and and know how to assess risk reward ratios and and make sure that they they use their executive center, not their impulse center. They they can develop slowly but surely a, a very powerful uh, portfolio. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I trust you out well. Big show coming up today as we cover off how you can become a billionaire property developer, which I'm sure will be of interest to you. Just quickly before we get to that, here's my project updates. In the last episode, I mentioned that we had received a formal response from Council to our planning application for the site where we failed to get a permit last year. I've since had a couple of meetings with Council to go over the issues they raised in their letter. Some of these are quite straightforward to resolve, one or two are a bit more complex. We had a useful discussion and made some changes to our plans and have asked to take the proposal to the public notice stage, which hopefully will take place in the next few weeks. On the other project, we are still waiting to hear back from Council, so not much to report there. Just quickly, thank you to those people who have sent in case studies to go in the running to win the awesome Place Economy book by last episode's guest, Andy Hoyne. If you do have an example of a development that has had a big impact on a local area or community, then please send it to me by email. You can get me at justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. But be quick as I would like to announce the winner in the next episode. And finally, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, for details about the Property Developing Mentoring Program run by past guest Troy Harris. Okay, on with the show. Today I'm speaking with a man who has had a huge influence on the direction of my life. His name is Dr. John Martini. John is a human behavior expert, polymath, and amazing guy. I'm yet to meet someone who has studied more deeply across a vast range of subjects than John. He has deeply studied business, relationships, health, wealth, and so much more. I strongly suggest you jump over to his website and dig around to discover more about him. His website is drdemartini.com, which is D-R-D-E-M-A-R-T-I-N-I.com. I really wanted to have a conversation with John that might help expand your thinking about what's possible with your developing, and settled on the topic of how to become a billionaire property developer, as I knew John could cover this subject with great insight, having worked for decades with billionaire businessmen and property developers. I really enjoyed sitting down with John and talking about this topic, and I'm excited to be bringing it to you. Keep an ear out during the discussion for how to own the traits of people you admire, the importance of having a vision, and the importance of having a team around you. As you know, I normally start off by asking people what food they would eat until they were sick. But knowing a bit about John's history and the fact he nearly died from eating something dodgy as a teenager, I wondered how he would respond. I'm quite moderate, as you probably guessed, so I don't have anything that I would eat excessive. I mean, I may have sometimes uh, a large bowl of vegetables or fruit. Um, <laughs> I think you once I, ate I something I that yeah, I, actually did make you sick. Well, in the past, so, but not recent, not in many years. So I, I'm pretty moderate on my diet. I don't, I don't overeat anywhere. Well, I think so. one of the turning points in your life was eating 
strange food that actually did make you very, very sick. Well, when I was a teenager, I uh, was eating natural um, habitat foods, you might say, that were living in Hawaii and that they were toxic and I didn't realize how toxic they were and I, I paid a price for that but but I, at the same time I wouldn't be here where I am if it wasn't for that so that's all part of the on the way not in the way adventure so but I, I don't think there's any food that I would overeat today it's not prob- not probable anyway no well I think didn't you eat berries that made you really sick and you had a near death experience and when you woke up you decided you were going to change your life and turn things around yes when I was 17 I um I had accumulated strychnine cyanide poisoning from a particular plant that I was eating there and uh, didn't didn't realize the significance of how it was affecting me. I thought it was because I was surfing 11 hours a day that I had electrolyte imbalances, some of the symptoms. Turned out it was strychnine cyanide poisoning. So I did nearly die when I was 17. And, uh, you know, I, I, that led me to... I was living in a tent at the time. That led me to... A lady found me in my tent nearly dead. I'd been unconscious for a few days, and uh, she found me and led me to a health food store. And the health food store, I started to be conscious of what I was eating and how to eat. And that led me to an evening class where I met Paul Bragg, where I was inspired by one man one night, one hour, to do what I'm doing today, to travel the world and teach. So here I am 46 years later, still doing what I love doing, which is traveling the world teaching. Well, you've done some pretty extraordinary things since then. I'm grateful to you for going on and doing that. And I guess this is a public opportunity for me to say thank you for oh, thank you for the impact you've had on my life. Well, um, I uh, I try my best to try to. I was told by Zig Ziglar maybe when I was 20, if you help other people get where they want to get in life, it helps you get where you want to get in life. So I'm not an altruist or a narcissist. I'm try to have a nice blend of both. Yes, well, I frequently mention some of your teachings and lessons that I've learned along the way on this show, so we'll hopefully explore some of those a little bit further. But Great. When I contacted you, I said, let's have a discussion around how you become a billion-dollar property developer. But just before we get to that, what, um, we've covered your background a little bit. I don't think you've ever been involved in property development, but I'm sure you've acquired property. You used to live in Trump Tower. and yeah, I, have, I have had... I've purchased properties... And I've used them as rental properties. Um, and I've also had a lot of friends who are in property development, some of the people that live on our ship. Um, also some friends, uh, Joe Seiden, who was a competitor to Donald Trump. And um, many of them on the ship have large portfolios. In fact, Santon City was built from one of my friends. And um, he built that from a farm ranch area, and now it's the financial capital of South Africa. But... Um, so I've had the opportunity to interact with quite a few financial property developers, and and I've but I have not been the developer. I have been more of the um, purchaser and you know buying rental properties and and renting them out, and making income from it. But I've also been friends with Salil from uh, Sunland Corporation. I've had time with him and in dinner, and also Chris Freeman from Mervac Corporation and. So there's people I've met along the way that interact with and had and consulted with and helped in other areas, not just property development, but in areas of their personal issues. And um, so I've had some experience in that area. And there's enough overlapping principles of achievement 
that apply to property development just like they would any other achievement. Yeah, and you've got a connection with Australian property, having uh, acquired property here in the past, and yep. and now I think uh, I think you say you live in a mobile home. Well, now I, I well most of the time I'm in hotels. <laughs> I travel extensively, as you know, and um, I think I've been in 17 countries in the last six weeks and three days. So I, I, I do a lot of traveling, but um, I also live on a ship called the World for 17 years. And um, which is filled with property developing owners. Probably of the 20 billionaires that live on there, I'd say probably 12 of them are probably property developers. So there's a lot of money that's been made in 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 the risk reward ratios of property development, and and certainly wealth building can be made that way. And people who um, have the patience and keep the liquidity and and think long term and and know how to assess risk-reward ratios and, and make sure that they they use their executive center, not their impulse center. They, they can develop slowly but surely a, a very powerful uh, portfolio. So I think it's just a matter of being patient and, and not rushing in and impulsively doing things, but making sure that things meet your criteria that you're working with. And so with the consultations that you've done with these billionaire property uh, developers and also billionaire business owners, what is it? Is that what makes them different to your, your average owner or developer? Well, I think that you don't get... Uh, you don't excel in anything, uh, whether it be sports or whether it be business or whether it be wealth building or whatever, without a long-term plan very easily. And you don't do it without having um, the patience to endure the ups and downs along the way. And you eventually get more conservative, probably. So at least that's my observation. And you, you know what liquid uh, cash you need and what access. Because a bank can, and a lending institution can close down on you any second. There's an old proverb that says when it's raining, they pull in the umbrella. And when it's sunny, they give you an umbrella. And I think there's some truth in that. And so you have to have, you know, I think in any business, particularly in property, though, you need a network of people that are the experts that you're friends with in those locations that you're planning on building. People that know the government, the permits, people that are involved in lending, people involved in in, um, um, details that are all going to be involved, and make sure you have a team with you. And people who, property developers, I I worked with one in New Zealand, it it was worth just under a billion. And he um, he was telling me some of the journey he had to deal through. It took him 28 years to get there. I've seen it go quicker. I've seen it take longer. And um, he, he is building a team is what he had to do. Donald Trump had to build a team. He had a team of people that would take every possible risk that could happen and prepare in advance and make sure those were mitigated before they were pursuing projects. Uh, because you don't want to go and have hindsight. You don't build fortunes with hindsight. You do it with foresight. You have to learn from hindsight, but you want as much foresight as possible. The more foresight you have, the less hindsight you have to have. And uh, I think that's uh, the executive center in the brain is for that, and the amygdala is for impulses. And if you just shoot from the hip, sometimes you you can get bit. It doesn't mean you don't take some risks, but they're calculated risks. When somebody sees, oh, they they took a major risk, they actually did calculations and they looked at their things and made sure that it was in their favor. They didn't have to go out and put everything on the line just for a gamble. It's usually they're mitigating their risks as best they can and they're thinking through logically what the 
potential returns are, and they think worst-case scenarios. If they can handle the worst-case scenarios, they can move forward. But to, to only look at the upside and don't look at the downside is foolish. You need to take the worst-case scenarios and, and be able to handle worst-case scenarios. Imagine worse, and nothing worked out the way you wanted, and it all went against you. If you're still prepared for that and you can handle that, it usually is not that crazy, and you usually come out to your advantage. But somebody that's blindsided by not thinking out the downsides is foolish. And so with those uh, billionaire people that you consult with, what kind of issues are they coming to you to seek help with? And how do they differ from, say, a run-of-the-mill or an average small business owner who struggles to grow? Um, I don't know if they're all that different. Just It's scaled up, maybe. But they have uh, family issues. <laughs> um, managing their, their families, amazingly, is a, is a factor, like because sometimes kids get entitled. You know, Gina Reinhardt is a good example. Gina Reinhardt had uh, challenges with her children in, in the estate. And uh, so those are distractions. They're not exactly in the proper development, but they're a byproduct of that. Because if they know, if the kids know that you have a vast fortune, they can sometimes think that, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll inherit that. I'll just ride this thing out and not drive themselves. And then you got to deal with that. And sometimes spouses are they upset with you and they think, well, I can... I mean, I had one gentleman that had, um, he, was, he, didn't want, he wanted to divorce his wife, but he couldn't because it's too costly. She wasn't worth it. And so he had to wait for the economic downturn before he could unload because he didn't want to pay that kind of money to his wife. So those are things. And then you've got um, partners. Sometimes partners want to go in different directions at different stages of life. Some people have a, a long-term vision, want to do it all the way through their life, and others want to do it and have an exit strategy. And then you're now dependent on that partner, and they're going a different direction. So you have conflicts. And then sometimes you find out there's government people. You get higher up the game, and you got people that are out to get you, and they want a competition. And, and another guy, they're friends with another guy that's a property developer, doesn't want you to succeed and be, be on it. So it's politics. I was uh, sitting in a... I'll get an example. There was a guy in New York who divorced his wife, and was living in a very tall high-rise that you could see Central Park with. So it's a very nice position, beautiful view. And his ex-wife uh, ended up marrying a guy that ran Sotheby's, and she demanded that her husband build a 78-story building blocking the, uh, the first husband's view <laughs> to lower the value of the property by blocking its Central Park view. So um, those are retaliations that the next wife can do that can aggravate people. And that's and that could be driving a property development of some form. And that's a that's a rare one, but that's still that's a reality case that I had to deal with one time. Then you have also uh, managing the money. You uh, can all of a sudden have a downturn in the market, and all of a sudden you're not uh, getting as much cash coming in, and you overextended yourself, and you all of a sudden have the banks close down on you, and, and you got to get private investors, and then you got to have a network of people and. And some people have a motive to say, let's let's squeeze the guy and then he'll sell the whole thing at dirt cheap and we can make a profit out of it when the turn comes. And so you got people out to, that are opportunists and you have to deal with opportunists. And then you also just have to deal with the wear and tear, depreciation and hassles of managing properties. And, that, and you have to have teams that are able to do that. And that's costly. And um, sometimes there's... There's uh, events. I mean, in some parts of the world, you got hurricanes or tar uh, typhoons, you got floods, you got Lord knows what you have. I know a guy that uh, had a situation where all of a sudden a, 
a hurricane came in and he was just finishing building this beautiful tall building and a hurricane came in and all of a sudden the property development property prices dropped 30 percent and uh he was anticipating it and a lot of people that put the money down all of a sudden didn't close and so he was stuck with a bunch of properties and he couldn't close it but 30 percent lower it took him almost three years to get that where it was filled up and he had to ride that out luckily he had the cash for it but that was a very stressful situation so i think that uh I, I'm, I'm a conservative guy, so I'm a believer in having lots of cash. The, the leading companies in the world have lots of reserve in cash because they don't want to be sitting there fretting in sleepless nights. So I'm a believer that even in property development, you can't overextend yourself. You need to know really what your real, <clears throat> not your emotional comfort zones are, but the reality of the cycle, the market cycle, the comfort zones are, and make sure you have the liquidity for that. And not outside liquidity, except, you know, where you think, oh, I just go get the bank and get me money, they'll take care of it. Because that may not be it. You may have to have private investors, you may have to have uh, just your own liquidity and be patient and be conservative along the way. I'd much rather be uh, relaxed and know that I'm growing and have the, kid, the working capital and not ever be anxious about it. And then with that working capital, when opportunities are there, you can grab really good opportunities. Just like in the market, the financial uh, stock market. You know, if you have cash on reserve, you can get some really good deals at times. So I think that's essential. I mean, there are, there are, there are properties right now, sometimes they're, for whatever reason, they're owned by a foreign investor. That country over there has now got problems. They've got to regroup, and they'll sell something at dirt cheap, and you can grab a, a piece of property at really cheap prices. So if you've got the capital, uh, you can take advantage of, of deals that come along. So I'm a firm believer in keeping liquid capital, have reserves. Yeah, I think, Don't over-leverage yourself. Yes, which I think was a lesson I learned from you. And uh, the reason for that is to reduce your volatility. Well, it, it, you know, I always say that uh, whatever your business income is and whatever the fluctuations are, you need at least 10 times the volatility uh, in cash reserve uh, minimum or at least 90 days worth of liquid capital. Um, most of the company, the Fortune 100 companies, have 40 to 100% of, of liquid capital for an entire years of income. And so I think that minimum of 90 days, probably 180 days is probably smart. I mean, Bill Gates, and, and uh, they keep a, a whole year's worth of liquid capital. Apple has, what, uh, $280 billion in liquid capital. So I'm a firm believer in having a, you know, I'll keep a year's worth of liquid capital. And people say, why aren't you using that capital? And I said, oh, I will. And then I wait, and then when big crashes come, when they raise interest rates, and big crashes come, and I get to buy a bunch of stuff. When everybody else is freaking out, I get to buy stuff. So I, um, I'm a firm believer in, in being patient with money and having liquidity, and don't rush it. Don't try to beat it every sick. You know, people sometimes are going, "Oh, I got to use that money really quick. I got to do it. I'm in a hurry." And everything else, and they, they sometimes lose their reason, and then they get caught. So. I'd rather be, I'm more on the cautious side. So there may be somebody who's listening to this and they go, well, no, I'm a risk taker. I'm more cautious. I like to make sure I have the money. I don't like to, I hear, I've heard people that go up and go down and go up and down. The guy I was telling you about that's friends with Donald, you know, he rose up and had hundreds of millions of dollars and definitely is over a billion when he sold his company recently. And he, um, he rose up and fell and rose up and fell twice. And the, the falling was very painful for him. I mean, he, he just was, it took him like 10 years to get through that. And, uh, but he rose up again. But this time, I remember chatting with him many times. He had way more reserve capital, way more reserve capital. He says, I'm not doing that again. I have capital. 
and this time he did it, and he sold it well. So he he walked out with a really large fortune out of his sales. And I think you're a believer, or you you teach the idea that it's the challenges that you face in life that help you grow and are actually more beneficial than if you get an easy ride. Well, everybody has a set of priorities in life, a set of values in life, and um, we evaluate our reality, our perceptions, decisions, and actions are based on it. And whenever those those values are perceived as challenging, we tend to be clear about what our values are, and we tend to uh, be more, more um, you might say, active and engaged in pursuing them. And when we're supported, we can lax. I always say that when you get overly supported, you can depurpose. When you get challenged, you, you repurpose. And when you go back to the highest values with the challenges, that's where the entrepreneur is born. The people that have had it too easy and supported, they, they usually work for other people was for security. They survive, not thrive. And the people that have had challenges, usually they're the ones that push themselves to go and do... They, they're handling the challenge. They're used to it. I have a good example in my own family. My, my sister, as a girl... My parents, probably because of the stereotype of the last generation, that you know the girl's probably going to get married and she's not going to work. She's going to probably take care of a family. That whole model it was still there, and so she was not prepared for uh, not having uh, having a husband, going through a divorce, and him dying, and and uh, and then all of a sudden she's on her own. She wasn't prepared for entrepreneurship. Where myself, my parents kind of prepared me for entrepreneurship. You know, they challenged me, gave me accountabilities, responsibilities. I had to pay for rent, clothing, and food when I was nine years old. And uh, I had to do jobs around the neighborhood to pay for it. And so I think they prepared me as an entrepreneur. And I'm glad for that. I'm very grateful. I've tried to do that with my, my kids, but because they know I have some wealth, they, they, uh, they also were a little bit more resistant at that. But I finally got across to them that they all have to produce it because I showed in my estate system that they don't get a penny unless they match it with their own savings. And then they can only use no more than 2% till they're 35 and only 3% of that portfolio, uh, only to the degree that they've saved and only up until 35, only 3%, so they can never erode the principal. So I've, I've got it set up where they're going, oh, crap, i got to go work and go save my money and make my money. So it, it made them now entrepreneurs. And you've covered a lot of topics there that I want to flesh out a little bit more. But if I was... To consult with you, sit down with you and say, John, I want to be a billion dollar property developer. What would you advise me or what what are the questions you'd ask me? I'd probably find out, uh, is this something that you have evidence of in your life? And is this something that is showing a a progressive, incremental uh, expansion and commitment to that to find out if it's just a whim or if it's something you're really sincere about? I'd find out uh, what are your reasons for doing it and to find out if there are sustainable reasons. Um, I'd find out um, who you're hanging out with and show if your life shows evidence that that's really a commitment to make sure first. And then I would suggest that they go and interact and meet with people that have already done it. And because if you hang out with people that are doing that, you're probably going to increase the probability of you doing it and find out the things that they admire and despise about those individuals and own all the traits that are necessary. I go through and, you know, the Demartini method, I, I sit down and I go, okay, so where and when do I display and demonstrate those traits and make sure you realize you have all the capacities that it takes in the people you see doing it and start listing the, the common denominators and behaviors that you see and build a, a, an ownership of those traits inside yourself. 
And then I would basically put a long-term plan together because if you don't have a long-term plan and you have immediate gratification, you, you're probably impulsive and probably stop doing things that takes to get there. But have a long-term plan and be patient. You know, I've been doing the breakthrough experience for nearly 30 years, and I've done it 1,041 times. And I've done 25 hours each time I do it, so I've done about 29,000 hours just in one seminar. And uh, so I, when I think about it, that... That's a, a, a long-term, consistent focus on a, on a project. It's made me nearly $100 million out of it, but in the process of doing it, it, it also, um, you know, take a lot of hours. If a person's not willing to put in the hours and they want an overnight success, um, they probably are living in a fantasy land. And it doesn't mean that there aren't people that do it. It just means that the, the probabilities are low unless you're willing to do the same things they do and you need to own those traits and find out what they're doing and are, are you willing to do it? Does it, does it meet your constitution? And, uh, and, and most likely they build a team around them. They know the worst case scenarios. They, they know how to handle risk. They mitigate the risk. They foresight it. They think it through and, and they, they pursue it. I have a friend that has about 800 properties. And uh, he's in. I just spoke with him uh, night before last. Eight hundred properties, and he's done that in twelve years. Twelve years, eight hundred properties from scratch. And he, what he did is he put an educational process together, where he's educating other people doing it, like yourself. And um, they pooled funds, and they were able to escalate the the funding because there's plenty of people that funding because they were educating and getting new people into it. And he, they, he had to qualify him, and I had an influence on that for the last decade because uh, he's been a student for about 12 years. But he's, he's qualified the clients in stages of what they could do so he doesn't have somebody that's unqualified in, in big projects. And he, doesn't, he makes sure that he doesn't ever take more than a certain percentage of their portfolio so he never has a volatile person. He has only patient people that are thinking long-term with him. And they meet those criteria, and they earn them, and he trains them. And he's got a really good training process, but he's built a a very significant portfolio. Now, he's not uh, as much... Uh, he's got some property development, but he's mainly buying and, and, and renting properties and that kind of thing. And so he he's not, uh, you know, taking raw wharf land and turning it into high-rise condominiums so much, but he's taking properties, redoing them, and then bringing and making living quarters out of them or business opportunities, residential or commercial properties out of them. And he's, he's, he's doing it. I would be willing to bet that... A, in the next five to ten years, he's going to take on bigger projects because he's accumulating cash. He's, he's very liquid. He knows to keep liquid. He had a, a setback about a year ago with um, some uh, media coverage on him because there were some people that were upset, some people that, that want immediate gratification. They want quick money. They, they, they didn't get what they did. And they weren't doing what it is. They sometimes slander him, and social media can affect him, and that threw him for a little bit, but it was minor, but it was... That threw him for for about a year. That was a, a pain in the ass, you might say. But uh, but he stays with it, and he's keeping focused. And I help him through uh, those kind of challenges. So it's it's just a matter of staying with a, a vision. And, and, and it, if it's your vision, it's your commitment, then you'll get it. And if you don't give up on something, you get there. And you have to have a big enough vision. And, and uh, if you don't have an astronomical vision, you can't make a global difference. So if you want to make a national difference, you need a global vision. And... Um, you need to build a team, a big and, team. And when you talk about a long-term plan, what would that include? Or what would it look like? Well, what, what, do you, what do you want? If you were on Wikipedia a thousand years from now, what would they say about you? What do you want it said? 
What, what's the legacy you want? What's the, the mark you want to leave? What's the cause behind it? Is it just to build fortune? Is there a cause? People that have a cause bigger than just their own personal needs that definitely do better. The greater the cause, the greater the wealth potential. So uh, I, I'll use an example of a lady that, that uh, I've been dating, actually. And um, she, uh, here's, a, here's a cause thinking. She was looking in South Africa at townships that were extremely impoverished, that were isolated. And some of the people there were earning maybe 300 to to $1,000 a year. And they were trying to survive, and the kids were not even getting school. And she thought, what can I do to make a difference there? And she got an aerial view of the whole area and saw that there was a, tra- a rail about three miles away. So she ended up figuring out a way of getting raw land and uh, get funding for raw land, put in a rail off the land, and built a train manufacturing company in the area and, and took 2,000 people from a township and employed them and educated them and built uh, built their community and made them viable people that were contributing or that weren't dying and doing drugs and things of this nature and then got experts come in and they were involved in the training process and she did a humanitarian cause to build a, a train manufacturing company and built a massive three, she's got three plants now that's massive I mean, thousand-acre plants, and um, but she did it for the with the intention of trying to employ people and keep them out of townships, and so she was honored for her her contribution. But she had a cause, and she built built a multi-billion-dollar company because of it. So sometimes it's causes that are doing it, not just personal wealth building, because personal wealth building I think is is uh, is one way, but I don't think it's strong enough to get you uh, to make the, the vast fortunes. I think you need to have some cause that serves vast numbers of people driving it that you're really committed to. Yeah, I often talk about purpose on this show and how important Yeah, if is. you have a desire to say, you know what, I want to, I, want to, I want to give a residential, I want to provide one million homes for people in the world, and your goal is to get a million people into homes, uh, or you want to be able to have uh, uh, a 10,000 or 100,000 or a million people or 10 million people um, using your residential properties, uh, you know, I mean, your, your commercial properties for business. I mean, if you have some goal that's, that's got a cause to it, you'll go farther than just says, I want to make a billion dollars. Not that that's, that's nothing unworthy about either of them, but, but I think a combination of those, an altruistic and a narcissistic component is needed. Because um, the guy that did Santon City uh, had a vision. Michael Rapp had a vision of what he wanted to do, and he saw... He said, the financial district of Johannesburg is a dangerous area right now. He said, we need to build a new one. And so he had a vision of creating the greatest financial center in, in uh, southern Africa. And that was his vision. And today it is, the, it is this financial center. And he did it from a scratch. And he had a, he had a 50-year plan. And so as a result of that, he's, he achieved it. It started in 1970s, 1973, I think is when he hit ground. And so it's 40 Six years, almost fifty years now, and he's and he and now there's three hundred buildings there, and there, some of them are almost billion dollar comp- billion dollar buildings that are sitting there now. Yeah, I remember something that you taught me was around uh, when you're looking at people that you admire, and you're uh, there's always the positive things that you perceive about them, but there'll always be something negative or the drawbacks of that person that you need well, to go Well, there's always a hero for. and villain in everyone. Yeah. If I walk up to somebody and I said, you're always nice, you're never mean, you're always kind, you're never cruel, you're always positive, never negative, you're always peaceful, never wrathful, always generous, never stingy, 
they couldn't look you in the eye and say yes. If I said you're always mean, you're never nice, you're always cruel, you're never kind, you're always stingy, you're never generous, you're never, you're always wrathful, never peaceful, you're always inconsiderate, never considerate. They 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 couldn't look you in the eye and say yes. But if I said sometimes you're nice, sometimes you're mean, sometimes you're kind, sometimes you're cruel, sometimes you're generous, sometimes you're stingy, sometimes you're peaceful, sometimes you're wrathful, they could look you in the eye and go, yeah, that's true. So to expect any human being to be anything other than the trait you see and the opposite trait is delusional. So you really don't know somebody until you know both sides of them. And anytime you're doing business with them, they're only nice when you, when you do things that align with their values, and they can be tough when you go against their values. So no one's committed to you. They're committed to the fulfillment of their values. And you have to know that whoever you're dealing with, you have to know what their values are. A smart person will know what their values are. A dumb person will think they know what their persona is, their mask is. And underneath the mask is another side. So you want to you wanna not uh, be fooled and think that they're all oh, they're nice people, I could push over them. Because they can turn out to be pretty pretty crazy on the other side. That's why that's why making sure that you're when I, I had a guy that was trying to take money in, he was getting funding, and I said, well, "So who are you getting the money from?" He says, "Well, anybody that's that's helping, we'll grab anything we can." And I say, "Are you sure you want all those people in, in your partnerships? Do you know any of these people? I mean, you haven't even investigated who they are. You're just getting money from these people." He said, "Well, yeah, I need the money," and I said, "Well." You, you may pay a price by not screening the people you're getting money from. You're, it's like getting married to somebody without knowing what their background is. If they're bipolar or they're schizophrenic or they're, you know, they've got drug usage or something, you don't know what they're dealing with. And so I think it's wise to, to build a team of people. There's a gentleman named Randall Davis in Houston, Texas. I don't know if you've heard of him. But Randall has, has built a multi-billion dollar portfolio. And he has, he's one of the biggest uh, property developers in Houston. And he's building now, he started out at, you know, taking a house, gutting it, getting rid of it, and building a duplex or something. And uh, then taking another one to doing that, another one doing that, and taking over a, a block. And he'll, he'll sit on there, and he'll have a plan for 30 years from now, he's going to demolish that, put in a high rise. So he's got this multiple plan, he's just taking over land. And now he's building, you know, 50-story buildings, 40-story buildings, and he's doing amazing stuff. But he's got thousands of followers, and they buy property, and they make money on with him, and then they take that money, and they buy it, they do the next property with him, and they just follow it, and he's built a culture, a culture of people that keep making money with him. And he's, a, he's an integral guy, and he hasn't tried to screw anybody around, and he's just up front. And he tries to give him a good deal. It's a win-win, and it's a it's fair exchange. And, um, you know, he's, he has no limit on income he can get. And he's structured quality qualifications for people who can put the money in. He makes sure they don't put too much in because they get elated. And um, he's got banks because he's got liquid. The banks are always willing to give money to, his, to, to people who've got money. You know, so he's got banks, but he doesn't always use banks. He uses the people to do it. And he wants to make them good deals. He wants them to. He wants a certain ratio of, of actually purchase and renters and flippers to people that are uh, actually renting and keeping properties there. He, he wants a ratio. He doesn't want just all flippers there. He, so he's he's got the formula down and he keeps doing it. And I don't know. He's built. He's building the landscape in Houston. He's, his buildings are going up all over the place, and he's built you know billions of dollars worth of property because he put a formula together and he stuck to the formula. He didn't try to do it too quick. He put. Uh, uh, he built a culture of people that believed in him and he believes in them. He truly, sincerely wants them to have wealth and he wants them to 
uh, have a family and have a great place to live and have a prestigious positioning. And he's trying to build people, and they try to build him back. And he's he's not, you know, if you get too narcissistic, it eventually backfires. You get too altruistic, you you, you don't go anywhere. You got to find a balance of sustainable, fair exchange with people, and that's a real property developer. I think learns that mix, and um, this gentleman has done it. He's 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 changed the landscape of Houston. Yeah, and the other thing I became aware of was the uh, the, the law of heuristic escalation. So, the bigger you get, you're going to have that opposing force coming at you, and, and yeah, if you're aware time, of that, then you can you take prepare a, for it. Anytime you take a position, you create an opposition. I'm a, in two weeks. I'm meeting with uh, a Israeli and a Jordanian, um, you know, Palestinian leader, and I'm going to be involved in negotiation uh, between a conflict. So I've, I've got my hands on a conflict issue there with my work, and that would be interesting because the the interaction that I've had and the slandering that's going on between them right now is pretty extensive, and it's all over the media, and, and they're attacking all the people involved. I'm sure they'll attack me trying to help them. And I'm going to use my method, and and they all want you to be on their side. And I'm not interested in being on a side because you can't get anywhere with being on a side. You can get you have to transcend the sides. And so you you in property development or any other business, you have to be able to transcend polarities like that. You, you, anywhere where you get a polarity, I always say anything you infatuate with or resent runs you, and anything you can transcend and and have neither uh, infatuation or resentment on it, just beyond attachment on it, you you keep growing. In the book of wealth, it said that there's three things that make very wealthy people. One is that they feel it by divine providence that they, and human sovereignty that they're d- designed to serve vast numbers of people. So property developers that really truly want to serve vast numbers of people are definitely going to go farther than people that don't have that. The other is that they want to raise the standard uh, and elevate the standard of life for humanity. And they're, they're not doing it just because they want to have a nice painting or a nice lifestyle to show off what they've got. It's because they want to raise the standard and they elevate the standard of the land and the quality and everything else in the society. And the third is that they've transcended the attachment to money, where it's not, uh, you value it, but the higher you value it, the more objective you are with it. And the lower you value it, the more polarized you are with it. It's either good or bad. But the more objective you are, the more you realize it's, it's a measuring stick of service and sustainable fair exchange. And if you understand that, it's, it's a, it can make a big difference in the financials. Yeah, well, money is a Hang up that people a lot. Some people can have. Can you just explain your views on money? Well, I see money as as a way of measuring again fair exchange. If if I do a service and you provide me less than what I requested, we have an agreement. I did a service. I delivered the service, and you pay me seventy percent of what I asked. I'll probably become narcissistic and belligerent and say, "Hey, man, you owe me something." If I go and do a service and you paid me and I only delivered 70% of the service, I'll probably feel altruistic and feel like I owe you something. And you have a built-in equity thermostat, an intuitive thermostat inside you for fair exchange. And the more you're living by what your highest value is and you're really congruent, the more that, that fair exchange is sustainable and you, you, you really realize what it is intuitively. And you, you have a sense for when there's not a fair exchange and you go out of your way to make sure people are or feel like they got a fair deal. That's the way. That's how you build a culture of people that keep wanting to do business with you. But if you try to tip that one way or the other, uh, and try to get too narcissistic and greedy, uh, you eventually find out that the people go against you. The law of heuristic escalation comes in, and the equal and opposite occurs to try to humble you because you got cocky and you get humbled. 
And I think this is what happens, uh, you know, sometimes. I mean, Donald Trump's a good example in the, in the news. You know, the second he gets cocky, they, they attack him really good. And, uh, <laughs> you know. That's a frequent occurrence, I think, frequent occurrence. Donald. But, you know, he, he just, his opinion of other, his, his opinion is more important than others. And his, I just, uh, <laughs> he doesn't pay much attention to it. But, but eventually that catches you. So you can do it for a period of time, but eventually you get humbled by it. Pride before the fall. It's a, it's a hubric uh, process. So I, I'm a firm believer that equity, I, I teach people equity. It's the only thing that sustains. People think they can uh, bulldoze over people, but eventually it catches. I've seen it many, many times. Maybe 10 years later before they get caught, but then they get, they get humbled. So it's better to build a, a foundation, not altruistically, but a, a fair exchange. And having a fine sense for that is, is the difference between a, a, a billion-dollar real estate person and a, and a million-dollar real estate person. Who can have the sense for that? And the other thing that people perhaps are not aware of is that if they were to become a billion-dollar property developer, there would be challenges in their life that perhaps they haven't considered because people would have this fantasy around all the money and I can buy fast cars and beautiful property and go traveling first class. But there's a whole other raft of challenges that would come with that lifestyle that they well, perhaps haven't considered. It's interesting. I, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen the challenges that people wealthy have. I had a, a guy on the ship that uh, is a billionaire and he... Uh, he was saying he's got a 46-year-old son that still hasn't got a job. <laughs> and he's having to maintain because he, he, he never worked. And so he, he had to learn how to manage families. That's, believe it or not, multi-generational wealth. Uh, there's a gentleman named James E. Hughes who wrote Family Wealth. And it's a multi-generational wealth system. And very few people can create a multi-generational wealth. Usually it's rags to riches to rags. And so that is a significant factor that in your second half of your life, um, you're now having to accumulate a vast fortune. And now how do you manage that fortune? And what do you do with it? And how do you deal with your family? And how do you deal with the state? This becomes a factor. And people think, oh, it'll get easier because I have money. But no, it doesn't get easier. It gets different. You have new sets of challenges. Um, I'm just amazed at, at some of the challenges I've seen that some of the some wealthy people have. And things you would never imagine I mean, uh, I, had a, a, I got to consult with one of the Rothschild family in New York one time, and, uh, and uh, his girlfriend was <clears throat> a gold digger, and he had this hots for this chick that was super hot, but a gold digger. So he, he didn't want to be without her sexually, but at the same time, she was, a, she was an absolutely holy terror, and she was after his money, and she was down, down to get it, and she was leveraging everything she could to get the cash. But she didn't. He didn't want to be without her because she was so hot, and so it was like a, you know, the, nature puts a little trap in there to make sure that no matter what you have, there's always the next challenge, and it's just quite interesting. And I had another guy that said, you know, he had he wasn't a, quite a billionaire. He had about four hundred and seventy million dollars, and he says, you know, I've got enough money. I want to relax a bit, and the more he tried to relax, the more things started chaos started occurring around him. He started found himself interested in younger girls because his wife passed away, and that was chaotic. And then he had, because uh, his, his daughters were disowning him because of it. Then he had a situation where he had to, one of his properties got uh, a, a big rains hit and it flooded and he had to deal with that. It was always some little nitpicky little thing that he was dealing with or somebody that was out to attack him. And people think, well, when I get this extra money, I'm going to have it sail free sailing. But, but if you don't, there's a very important thing about wealth, that if you have wealth without meaning, you tend to go into the amygdala, you tend to go to hedonism, and you eventually pursue 
that which is unavailable and try to avoid that which is unavoidable. And uh, you go through a, a, a passionate suffering process. That's why it's so important to have meaning. I think that that's the difference between someone like a, a Gates or a, a, maybe even a Buffett or these, these guys still have meaning and they still have something to be doing. You know, because sometimes people think, well, I can, I got enough money, I can just relax. But that's not what it's about. It, it's about consistently doing something that has meaning and service in life. The difference between humans and, and animals is animals have per- passion and pursue pleasure and avoid pain and seek pe- prey and avoid predator. But humans have the ability to find meaning and find uh, some purpose in their life to, to do something with. And I think that's a crucial component of fulfillment. And it's all the money in the world, if you don't have meaning, it is you end up squandering it on, on addictive behaviors. But having um, a meaning in life, I think, is important, and I think that allows you to continue to grow your fortune. And then what about riding the ups and downs of an economic cycle? What's your advice on how well, to manage that? To think that you're immune from the economic cycle is pretty foolish. You can mitigate them if you know how to manage money wisely. You can mitigate some of those. But I, th- I think that you need to be able to take the worst-case scenario and have the liquid for it. So you don't, you don't have an anxiety about it. And you ride the thing out and, and do things that... There's ways to manage ups and downs in the cycle, just like in the stock market. You can, you can do puts and calls, and you can handle and mitigate those volatilities with insurances. The same thing in real estate. You can be... Uh, certain things have different cycles. So certain real estate has different cycles during different times of the cycle. You may find cheap uh, properties that are larger uh, unit, larger number of units, quantity but not quality. Maybe they do well during the downtime, and then the quality, not quantity, does well during the uptime. And so you may diversify your portfolios into things that allow, the, no matter what goes on, those there's there's mitigation to it because you're not just all specialized in one area. And I think that that's, uh, that you just have some foresight and think out what the cycles are. And it may be different industries that are booming during a downtime. So you may want to build facilities and uh, availabilities for that and and be thinking about those cycles. Because some of those cycles are predictable. I mean, right now the mining is coming back, and it was down for six years or so. So as the mining comes up, there's going to be different uh, economic needs, different real estate needs, different purchases that could be done during that time. Then when all of a sudden the banking and economic cycles are up, uh, the... uh, you know, the financial services are up. So you, there are there are volatilities and, and cycles in each sector, and you can think about what's the real estate doing during those sectors, and you can then mitigate some of those by thinking that out. And even if it's not in your portfolio, you may be actually participating with somebody else that specializes in that and funding over here and getting growth over there and capital there to balance your own. You may work with a team and have a conglomerate with other people that are in different areas and and everybody's pulling their monies together and think that through. It's wise to have foresight and look at what those cycles are, not just assume you're immune to the cycles. The second you get, there's a thing called subjective bias. And when you get a subjective bias and you start to exaggerate yourself and you become blind to the downsides of things and you think you're invincible and those are the people that get hit. So you need to be thinking, what are those things? And, and you don't need to be you know, a, a super crazy risk taker to become wealthy. You, you, you do have to take some risk, but it's calculated risk, and you need to think out the foresight, reality. The, if you're using your exe- executive center and you're using your, your, your math center, uh, you can actually plan out a wealth-building strategy that, and follow it. 
I'm, I'm working with a guy that I've been I've been consulting with every single month who's in Scotland, and he's building a, a he'll have a huge portfolio in the next decade. I mean, he's, he's growing really well, and he's got teams helping him, and he's putting it, he's a very diligent guy. He worked for a major company, and he's got now into property and development, and he's just doing amazing stuff. He's a very centered guy, very rational guy. He knows numbers, and he's and he's got he's putting the teams together. So this guy's definitely going to be a, a, a superstar. So. You know, it's 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 you can see the difference between the the people that have the foresight and the people that don't. You just t- touched on funding there. One of the questions I wanted to ask was around developers are often seeking capital. What, what's your advice around how they can go about finding it and securing it? Well, like I say, Randall Davis is building a culture of people that always have money. So he has tens of thousands of people that all have portfolios anywhere from five to ten million dollars. And so they can, they can, you know, if he wants to raise $100 million or a billion dollars, he can raise it with his own culture very quickly. And then when you have that and you don't need the money, the banks are willing to give you money. So you got them as a backup. And sometimes it's wiser to use cheap money from a bank. Other times it's wise to give investors a part of the action because the, that, they're, they're the ones that when, you, when push to shove comes along, if you've got a team of people that are always there with your back, you know, they'll, they'll help you because you're helping them. You know, he doesn't have to worry about liquid capital from banks and stuff and regulations and things. He just goes and does it. He's, he's got it. He has more regulation than a bank has regulation. But he's built up a, a team of people. You know, if I wanted to raise money, I don't have a desire to raise money, but if I wanted to raise money, I've got thousands of students around the world that I, in all probability, if I said, hey, you know, I want to raise $50 million or $100 million or some $200 million or something like that, I bet I could put that together pretty quick because of students. So he's built a culture. And building a culture, um, I think, could uh, be to everybody's advantage in in that development. So it comes back to that that idea of fair exchange. Fair exchange in building uh, people. You can't do it as a sole um, guy. You you have to to build a team of people. And uh, you want to have people that... As long as they're winning, they're going to be working towards an objective. If they're not winning, they're going to, you're going to have to go through a volatility of rise and fall of, of people in your organization. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I think that uh, building a culture of people and, and banks and organizations, building a culture of banks. I mean, I, I know some people that, that go in and, uh, you know, when they go into a city, they're going to start into a city and start doing property development in that city. They're going to, they may spend months or years in that city making their teams and getting their teams together before they ever start anything on the ground. They may make sure they know the people that are involved in permits, the government regulations, who's the people to know, the politics involved. He wants to know all the banks, who are the people, what's their lending things, what's their reputation. He wants to go and do, or she wants to go and do those things in advance. I had a, a, a very interesting thing. I had a lady that was a property developer in South Africa, and uh, she came to my evening talk. And I was talking about the Book of Wealth. So she said, well, would you summarize the Book of Wealth on a, on a video for me? And I said, okay. She says, I've got, I'm going to put 15,000 people in cinemas across South Africa. And I want you to go down to Urban Studios, Channel 3, and go into a, a private studio. And you're going to speak. And we're going to farm it out. And you're going to be speaking to 15,000 people if you do this. And uh, I said, fine. This is great. She says, I'll pay you 20 grand. She said, I'll pay you 20 grand for the hour to just to to do an hour summary on the Book of Wealth. And what I'm going to do is, that this is going to be a special one-hour event while we're doing showcases of our properties all over South Africa. 
and uh, she's like going, that's great. I, I'm thinking, I can't lose on the deal. I mean, I know the book. I can summarize the book. I'll do a presentation for now. I'll make a couple, 20 grand, and great. Well, while she's doing that, they're sending in the data on how many people are buying. She sold $150 million worth of properties in that area. $150 million worth of <laughs> You got short change on your 20 grand. No, no, no. She gave me the 20 grand, and then she gave me part ownership of a, one of her resorts and gave me a little, uh, a, a big five game reserve resort and gave me, it wasn't a big thing, but it was a, it was a good little, I did well. I can't complain. <laughs> but that was a gift. She says, what you just did for me today is, you know, at least I can do is give you one of those. And they had uh, part of this uh, resort, so... They didn't name one of the lines after you or anything, did they? No, but uh, <laughs> Metze Pepe was the name of the place. So, But the point was that uh, she had strategies. She was using custom, I mean, cutting-edge technology, social media, and everything else. And was at the, I mean, she was really advanced in the way she was approaching it. And she was doing it in bulk and was selling properties and in, in theaters. <laughs> I, mean, I never saw that before. And then and showing videos of properties of what's available and here's the prices and here's the growth rates and she was giving all this stuff and anybody that wants to make uh, buy property at a discount da 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 and was offering discount properties and she was selling it up like mad and selling up her developments and and it was it was happening and it was quite interesting watching what she was doing and she's got property all over South Africa and um, she's also doing it in Dubai and then I I saw you know one time I think I told you a story about. I was coming down the elevator in Trump Tower, and Donald got on because he's right above us. And we came down the elevator together, my wife and him and I. And we go into the lobby, and he's he's in the lobby, and uh, there's twelve of his disciples uh, waiting for him because he's like the you know the the god coming in. And uh, we're about to go out the swivel door out onto fifty six and fifth, and and go across the street to go and get some sushi, my wife and I. So we're listening to their conversation as we're going across the street, waiting for the light, and just listening to the whole conversation. And Donald was building the Hudson River Project at the time, which is a whole bunch of buildings there, all the way up to 30 to 70-story buildings. And he, um, he asked the people there, th- their job was to find everything that could go wrong and to prepare a dozen contingency plans for everything that could go wrong. So one of the guys there was the land expert, and he says, I want you to go down 60 feet, 70 feet down in the ground. I want to know, make sure there's nothing there. There's no Indian burials that could throw us off. There's no historical uh, grains of rock down there that we don't know about. I mean, I need geology background. I need everything to, to you know. We're going about to go down 8, 10 stories down the ground. Um, I need to know everything that could throw us off. I don't want to delay. And here's another guy that is involved in politics and permits. And his goal is to make sure there's nothing blocking that. And you, we're, we're, we're ready to go. We don't have any delays on that because that costs us money. Another one is the one that's getting rid of the properties that are there. So I need to know every single person of anybody that's still having difficulty selling their properties that we want. I want to know who they are. I want to know their, their grandmother, their life, their, their needs. And we're going to offer them something that they can't refuse. And we want to make sure we know everything about them so they can't stall us. So we have to build a building around a little house. You know, we want to. I mean, he had he had everything that could go wrong thought out and due diligence in advance, so he's prepared for the worst case scenario, and and he had a solution for each other, and that's why he built his his project. I mean, he he wasn't a positive thinker. He was a he was a he did a healthy skepticism, 
thought out what would, could happen and what he would do in case it happens and how do we solve it so there's no emotional reaction, there's just action. I think that's smart. Actually, speaking of wealth, I remember another story you told me where you once got into a lift with Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, oh, and the a massive rock. Huge yeah, his, his wife ring. had this giant rock, and I was going, I looked at the rock, and at first, at first I couldn't comprehend that uh, that was actually um, a real rock. I was like, whoa. And then I looked up, and it was Charlie. And I went, now I know why it's a real rock. <laughs> so, yeah, he was, he, was, uh, he was at the Marriott there in Las Vegas. All right. Well, we're running out of time, unfortunately. I could probably talk to you all day about developing. But just, so just quickly, a couple of um, common issues facing some of my listeners that if you could provide some advice on. I common get, commonly get emails from people saying they want to break into property development, but they either don't have the money or their partner doesn't support them um, or they don't want to risk doing something new. What would be your advice just quickly for someone well, in that situation? Well, anytime you're uh, pursuing something that's a fantasy that you're seeing the upsides to and you don't see the downsides to, your loved ones, particularly your spouse, will point out the downsides. And it's wise to listen to them until you solve, take everyone that they say and all the reasons why they say no and go and make sure that you have really thought through how do you handle all of those things. Uh, because if you do your due diligence and you solve all of their concerns, they'll be supporters. So you want you want the skeptic. The skeptic's not your enemy. Your skeptic is is your friend because they're making you think of stuff that you've overlooked in most cases. And um, when it comes to money, I think there there are people that figure out a way of buying property um, and getting money by having. You know, I mean, even property developers will sometimes have deposits on properties that off the plan that they've never done anything. There's nothing in the ground. It's just a little shack out there, and they're selling properties. And they're getting money up front and deposits and commitments up front to be able to go and, and secure the land and do everything. So there's ways of doing it, and uh, there's people that know how to do that. So you don't have to sit there and go, well, I don't have any background. I don't have any money. I can't go to the banks. And that's very limited thinking. When you have a big enough reason and you have a, a quality plan that you know is a moneymaker, money comes to people that know how to manage money. If you have a real, real system there that's going to make money and that's going to produce, that's going to be a service to people, that's not going to be a fantasy, uh, people with money will invest in that. So I had a guy that in New York who uh, was working at uh, running a hedge fund for a bank. He was running their, their hedge fund. And um, he was tired of doing it for them because he was getting paid a salary, a good salary, but not like he could. And he wanted, you know, 1% of the full portfolio. So he decided to do his own hedge fund. But he got a gentleman from Harvard who was a mathematician there to put together. It took him two years to put it together. It cost him $2 million to put it together. But he put together, uh, I mean, it was a mathematical quant structure for, for managing the markets that were just friggin' brilliant. And he threw it at me, and it was a, two big documents. And I went through them, and he says, anything you see in there that doesn't look great, well, I have to admit, I, I was more of an I was educated more than I, I was able to provide. I mean, I was like, this was amazing mathematics here. And he put together the most amazing, uh, you know, uh, portfolio management system I'd seen. And of course, mathematics doesn't care anything because quants have their their weaknesses. But still, it was brilliant. And so um, he left the bank and started on his own. But they had the bank become one of his clients, and he did it for the same fees to the bank. 
So it wasn't costing him any more. They were getting the same service, but he used that as one of his clients. And he ended up with a couple billion dollars in a matter of months because he had a, he had a system and he was confident in that he knew it would make money for people. And it would be comparable to, it beat the indexes. And so what he was basically uh, doing is he did his due diligence and he spent a couple of years in advance to prepare for that. Well, I think that that's the case. If you, if you have a, a magnificent plan and you put it together, money's not lacking to a quality project. Money's lacking to people that don't do the due diligence and they're having to, you know, go out of their way to try to find money. I think that money seeks quality investments. Put together a quality investment and a quality system and money will come to you. All right. Then the second one is someone's currently doing small projects, but they want to get into something bigger or doing multiple projects at a time. How do they make that step up? Well, it depends. Anytime you're trying to do multiple uh, projects at a time, you need to find a common denominator so you don't divide your attention. So you ask, what's the common thread to both these projects that you're focused on? and link both the projects to that and concentrate on that. If you're like trying to juggle a ball, if you look at it at the, any one ball, if you've got six balls in front of you and you look at any one ball, you'll drop five. But if you look in between all of them, you can juggle all six. So you need to find the common thread to them and focus on the common thread so you're not distracted and put one in, too much attention, too little attention on anything. Otherwise, you'll, you'll make money over here and you'll lose money over here kind of thing. So common denominator, find first. Two... Um, make sure that where look at where your bottleneck shows up. If all of a sudden you were to double your business or quadruple your business or a hundred times your business, where are you going to break down? What's not prepared? And think of that in advance. I do that with every consulting I do with people. I'd say, you know, if all of a sudden your business was to double in the next 60 days, where would it break down? Where would you have a bottleneck? And they go, uh, we have, if we doubled all of a sudden, my we wouldn't be able to handle the this, we wouldn't handle that. And I said, well, then let's get that in place. Let's make sure we got that due diligence so your brain and body can go there. Your, your, your business can go there. So think of where the bottlenecks are um, in advance. Makes your mind less anxious and you're more able to take action. And then basically it's a, it's a networking game. It's who you have in your network. Sometimes you can get up with somebody who's got another business and you can merge with them and all of a sudden you can have an emergent acquisition, double your business together and partner together and do what your, both of your expertise are. You could grow really fast. And sometimes you can basically go out there and, and if you've got something that's duplicatable and it's working and the market cycle is in your favor, you can over and, and go out there and, and take on the risk and say, let's do it again. We, got, we now got two teams that can do it. But you just want, you want to ask yourself, what is the bottleneck that's going to, where are you going to break down if all of a sudden you doubled or quadrupled or 10 times in, in a very short period of time? Where are you going to break down? And that way you're prepared in advance for those things because otherwise you're, you'll, you'll hit a plateau. And then you have to be able to see in your mind, can you even see it? Can you see in your mind the management of that? Because if you can't see it in your mind's eye, you'll, you'll have difficulty doing it. You'll have an anxiety and you'll block it. And the same thing with money. If all of a sudden you're managing larger sums of money, uh, right, right, each person has kind of a risk tolerance. So if all of a sudden you go and you say, all right, um, I'm going to do this and do this project, and I, I'm going to make a couple hundred thousand dollars on this this uh, this one little project. And you can handle a hundred thousand gain or loss, and it doesn't bother you. But if if you say, oh, "Well, I'm going to do a 50 unit uh, project, and it's going to be a five million dollar or ten million dollar uh, volatility," I could go either way with it. If you can't handle that, you're probably over your head. And so you that you need to think and do it in increments in that case, and don't be afraid to do it in increments. I mean, Solio when he started uh, Sunland. 
Have you seen in his office the, the stages of what he did? Yeah, it shows that his first property he bought, and he turned it into a duplex, and they did two of those, then he did four of those, then he did a, a four-story one with a little penthouse, then he did an eight-story one, then he did 16. He just kept doubling it, and he did it in increments. And over about a 12-year period, he was, he was building a giant building. But he, he, he built up a team, and he just did it methodically, and he took his time, and, and he, he, did, he, he watched the market cycle. He made sure he was in the cycle times that were going up to his advantage. And, um, yeah, he became a very wealthy man by doing that. So you don't have to take ex- exuberant risks, but you have to be patient, methodical, and know your cycles. The other final one is uh, I often get people saying they do a bit of developing on the side. It's kind of a part-time, but they really love it, and they'd love to move into it full-time. How do they transition out of their salaried role into well, working then for themselves. Everybody's going to make decisions based on what they think is going to give them more advantage and disadvantage. If they don't perceive there's going to be more advantage confidently in the next stage of property development, they'll hold on to their current job. I have no problem uh, holding on to a current job temporarily um, and putting in extra hours. I, I think you have to have a work ethic. If you're not willing to do the work, you probably have a pipe dream. So put in the extra hours and do twice as much effort on the on the property development until you're actually making a passive income there comparable to what you're doing over here. Once you're making that income uh, equal, you'll have no problem jumping. But if you have a secure family and you've got kids and you've got a, a responsibilities and you don't know for sure and it's kind of risky, that means you haven't done your due diligence. Doing the due diligence is taking out all the risk and making sure that you have a clear pathway on how you want to get where you want to go. And people that don't do that have anxiety, fear. Fear is your friend. It's not your enemy. Fear is letting you know that you don't have a, a strategic plan with all the risks mitigated yet. And once you do, you don't have fear. You know what to do. You just take action. So I'm a firm believer that nature forces us into our executive center, our forebrain, to make sure we mitigate risks on the goals that we set out for. And when we do, we make the fastest growth. All right. We've got to start winding down, unfortunately. But what's your uh, best tip for property developers out there who are looking to take their business to the next level? Define what they, they want to do. Start in their core competence and not, not try to venture out beyond what they know uh, unless they do the due diligence to study it. Get a mentor. Find somebody that, that has already been there, done that, that's already been there. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't learn from hindsight. Learn from, from foresight. Um, don't be afraid to uh, humble yourself and say, I don't know. Don't get too proud and think you don't know and, and, and go beyond your knowledge. And surround yourself with people that are, that are, that are teams that will help you get there. Make, and, and know that they're not going to want to, they're not dedicated to you. Nobody's dedicated to you. They're dedicated to the fulfillment of their values. If you help them fulfill their values, they'll help you fulfill yours. So get a team together that you're helping them fulfill theirs by them helping you fulfill yours and build a, a team around there. And build a culture. I really believe that uh, Randall is doing a... I mean, he's probably going to be the biggest land developer and owner probably in in the future. And because he's just... He's got tens of thousands of people that he's done quality service to. And now he can build shopping centers. He can build residential. He can build condos. He can build whatever he wants because he's got a team of people that say, here's the rationale. He, he thinks it through. He's got a team of of people making sure the market's right. He puts the prices right. He does them fairly. He doesn't try to gouge people. And he's made people millionaires. He's made thousands of millionaires with people. Because he says, we have an investment wing. 
If you'd like to join us and participate in our investments, fantastic. If you'd like to buy our properties and just have homes, that's fantastic. We have a certain ratio. We don't allow ourselves to go beyond that ratio. Here's what we have available. Uh, and he educates, pe- he educates people so they're not emotional. They're informed. And so he surrounds himself with an informed group of people that are helping him get what he wants because he's helping them get what they want. I mean, that's the best business savvy I know. So if you build up a team of people that want to help you, there's no lack of money to go and get into properties. And somebody's, you need somebody who's really good at knowing deals, real quality deals, and that does the due diligence. You know, if you go in there and inspect property and inspect everything, the more knowledge you have on knowing all the risks and things that are involved, the better decisions you're going to make. So make sure you have quality teams that know the area and know the risks of the area, know that where the where development's going to be in that city, where the roads are going to be, where the freeways are going to be, where hospitals are. Make sure you know the city and don't just think, oh, there's a pretty piece of land and don't think, you know, in this isolated island. Think of everything that's going on in the city, the movement of the city, because you could be developing an area and five years later that area just drops and everything's moving to the left. So you want to make sure you you're got the pulse and know the people that you need to know in the city to be able to ask the right questions and get people to, to, to do it. The more information you have, the better the decisions you're going to make. All right, second last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice ever received? Um, I think the best piece of advice is don't uh, follow what's true for you and not worry about what other people think about you. And I think that's probably been my my strength. Um, I'd rather have the whole world against me than my own soul. You know, follow what's true. You know, so many people subordinate to other people and infatuate with other people. Even if you go and mentor under somebody that's done something that's farther along, you don't want to infatuate with them and try to be them. You want to be you, but you want to incorporate the things, the principles that they've and methods that they followed that's worked. But don't try to be somebody else. Be yourself. Find what's true for you and what your real values are. That's why I have people go on my website and do the value determination process to look at what they really, really, really value because what your life demonstrates you're committed to, your life demonstrates. And you don't want to venture outside and try to be somebody you're not because eventually it catches you. So just be yourself and uh, don't get cocky. You know, just, get, just be humble and keep working on what it is that you want to do and be true, to, true, true about it. And be patient. Just be patient be yourself. Common sense. All right, lastly... People who are listening going, oh, I really like this guy. He's got some interesting things to say. If they want to find out more about you, where should they go or what should they do? Well, if they want to find me, they can go on, on uh, my website, drdmartini.com, or just type in my name. I, I think I'm everywhere. i got a lot of uh, coverage out there. So if uh, they go on my website, they can find out what I'm doing. There's There's hundreds and hundreds of articles of all different sorts. There's media interviews. There's products, there's programs, there's all kind of things that I'm involved in. So they can they can find me, at least the public ones. The private ones they may not know get to access, but the public events that I'm doing and they, they can access. Plus we do live like last night we did a live webinar and um, we're doing education. I, I'm involved in education around the world so I'm doing programs almost every day. Yeah, I know you've got a range of programs and uh, they can go pretty deep. So <laughs> Yeah, I I'm well I, I learned a long time ago that uh, Sometimes people think, well, I want to be... Like Charlie Munger, for instance. Uh, you probably read Poor Charlie's Almanac, right? Yes, that big blue book. I recommend that to my listeners to great. It's today. a fantastic book. 
it's simple, fun, humorous anecdotes that are philosophically sound stuff. And here's a bright guy. He's a polymath, and he's philosophy-based, and he's done his homework. And people think, oh, I want to be you know, a rich guy. But the, the, he's developed a, a, a state of being that's necessary for his positioning. And the people I know are not slouches. They're not, you don't just go and become wealthy without actually developing the, the state of mind. I'm, that's what I'm interested in. I'm helping in, help people build the, the state of mind of mastery, the state of mind of leadership. And um, that, because I see, just like this conflict that I'm dealing with in, in uh, Israel and, and Palestine, you know, the reason why there's a conflict there is because they're in their amygdala and they're doing a classical amygdala response of being proud, righteous, I know best, peace will be whatever people will do what I tell them. And that's just ludicrous. And so there's, there's a lack of education, and many people running countries are, they're not necessarily educated. We had in South Africa an eighth grade educated man being president for about eight years. I mean, how can you, how can you have, uh, you know, quality things when you have no understanding of how human beings work? So I'm involved in education to try to give people, and not formal education, the classical education, but education that is stuff that, you know, like when you went to school, the, the probability of them teaching you how to be an entrepreneur is, is like zero. They taught you how to be a, a sheep, how to be a drone, how to work for the industrial age. But nobody taught you how to be an entrepreneur and how to become you know, a leader, uh, running a major business, how to be wealthy, how to manage uh, relationships, how to uh, be inspired, how to wake up your genius in mind. And so that's what I'm interested in. I'm helping people empower all areas of their life so they can do something extraordinary with their life. And so if they go on the website, they can, they can find things that will help them in that area. Yeah, well, I've done a few of your courses, including up to some of your fairly advanced stuff, and I just think it's incredible. There's nothing out there like yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's unique, for sure. I, I want to create original work that's served, and I think that's what's happening. So that's what's allowed me to bless, bless my life with traveling the world like this. Yes, dealing uh, with you and going on some of your courses is a bit like going down rabbit holes, but <laughs> in a very enjoyable way. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I'm. Uh, I told people. I said, unless you have an astronomical vision, don't expect to have a global uh, impact. And so, I've, I've, uh, the program is coming up that you, I think you're going to be coming to is is on uh, astrophysics and cosmology. Where does man's role in the universe? And uh, that 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 sets the stage of perception that it gives a person a, a positioning in the world that makes the world look like okay. Here's a marble I'd like to play with. What do I want to do on the on the planet? I remember I was having dinner one time with Rupert Murdoch, and uh, I asked him how did he build his empire. I just that simple question, and he said, "Well, what I do is I hold a globe in my office in my hand and I spin it around, and I look at the globe and I watch the countries go by, and I said, what message do I want to bring to what part of the world today?'" And I said, "What a great metaphor! He's out here celestially looking down at a terrestrial globe, instead of like most people terrestrially looking out at celestial heavens." And his perspective is what allows him to do bigger things. So that's why I'm training those courses. People go, why would you teach a course on astrophysics? To expand the person's awareness so they can look back at the Earth and realize, hey, this is a simple little project. This Earth, what do we want to do on Earth? To set the mind for um, a bigger game. All right. I think we'll get, well, we do have to leave it there, (laughs) unfortunately. It's a good place to finish. 
Dr. John D. Martini, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. And again, I'd just like to publicly thank you for everything you've done for me. And uh, I wouldn't be where I am today without your help and guidance. Well, thank you. Thanks for the interview. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay, there you go. I hope that conversation with John has helped to expand your thinking, broadened your horizon, and inspired you to take your developing to the next level, or maybe several levels higher. There was so much gold in that chat that I couldn't come up with only three things to talk to you about. So I have a quick list of 10 for you to consider. One, do you have a vast vision and purpose? John said it tends to lead to greater wealth achievement, so think about how big you could go, and then double it. Two, Having a great team of people around you will help you scale and grow. Three, own the traits of the developers or people that you admire. The people you admire are only humans and you have the potential to be just as great or even greater than them. Find out what traits help them get to where they are and figure out how you have those traits too. Four, have a long-term plan and be patient. Stay focused on your big picture goal and keep chipping away at it. Five, grow a base of loyal investors that can help fund your projects. Can you help educate a group of people who you can help grow wealth with? 6. Operate on the basis of fair exchange. It will carry you further and longer. Don't always go for cheapest price or fastest results or driving people into the ground. Try and be fair and equitable. 7. If you help people get what they want, you can get what you want. 8. Is your vision a fantasy or will it become a reality? How serious are you about the dreams and goals you have? Is it just a fantasy or are you taking steps every day to make them happen? 9. Billionaires have problems too. Don't think that your life will be easy if you snapped your fingers and became a billionaire. You'd have problems, they'll just be different. And finally, 10. The only person stopping you from getting what you want from life is you. So forget about the excuses or the fears. Stop running a story and go after what you really want. Okay, if you want to find out more about John, then head over to his website, drdemartini.com. Go and see him speak at one of his free public talks, or better still, do one of his courses. Okay, it's been a long show. Thanks for sticking around. Don't forget you can find all the past episodes of the show at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And until next time, may you have a vast vision and become a billionaire property developer. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.